Good morning. Our scripture passage for today comes from Ephesians chapter 4. You may notice in our new bulletin format that you can find the printed scripture passage on page 8, but it's also on page 951 in the Black Bibles that uh, you were provided when you came in. Before we read together, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it encourages us towards unity and maturity in Christ. Father, we pray in this cultural moment in which we live, in which there are many forces which seek to fracture us as your body, that you would remind us that we are unified in our body's head, the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for Pastor Mike. Give him power through your spirit, power to proclaim your word to us so that it might have its good work in us through your spirit, that we might become your people and in all ways to grow in all aspects into him who is the head, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Thanks for the reading and the prayer, Jeff. 
Sylvia has copies of the sermon manuscript, which we make available to anyone who wants to have them to use now or perhaps later. I'd like to give just a shout out to Micah and to Beth. They meet every week to plan the music for the service, and I feel like the ground and our hearts have been so prepared to receive the Word of God by by the words and music that we have shared. So just thank you for that. I get to be an observer to that. It happens at my kitchen table, but it really happens here. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, if you pay close attention to this morning's passage, you'll notice that some words really stand out. The words call and calling, the words gift and give, the words every and all, and the word body. But there's one word that stands out the most and which, appropriately enough, unifies this passage. It's the word one. The word one, which is an adjective, and the word unity, which is a noun, give shape and form to this passage. The idea of oneness gives coherence and a sense of direction to what Paul is telling us. Unity is the place we start and the condition we need to maintain But it's also the place where we have to end up and the stature we need to attain. Make every effort, says Paul, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That comes early in the passage in verse 3. But we're also called to do the work of ministry and build up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of of the Son of God. That's in verse 13. And in between those two bookend verses that name unity as our beginning and our end, there's a whole bookshelf full of volume ones that Paul names. Listen again. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. There's one Lord One faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You can't not notice those ones, seven in all. And you can't not notice the way Paul juxtaposes those seven ones with those four alls. Paul's making a not very subtle point here. You might be a unique individual. You might have a particular calling. You might even have a spectacular and strategic and indispensable gift in the body of Christ. But your unique oneness has to serve the allness of the body of Christ. Here's the thing. We aren't just called to unity with one another, which of course we are, but we're also called to unity with Jesus. In fact, that's our primary and defining unity and our primary and defining identity. That's the source that everything else comes from. We're only one. We only can be one with each other because we are one with Him. And that's what makes us the body of Christ. We're His body because He's the head. Our unity with Jesus is the most essential feature of our life. 
and of our life together. And we never can and we never will live a life that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called unless we are deeply rooted in our union with Him, to use a a word from last week's passage, rooted, and unless we are intentionally working together to pursue a fuller and deeper union with Him so that on Him as our foundation, that's another word from last week's passage, we can be built up as He imagines. That's how we grow up into the stature of Christ, to use language from this morning's passage. That's the picture that Paul's painting in this chapter. A body growing up, a human person maturing in knowledge, ability, and capacity. This isn't on the manuscript, but have you ever noticed how big a baby's head is relative to a baby's body? A baby's head is almost one-fourth of the total body length. By the time you get to an adult, it's closer to one-seventh. Babies can't even hold their heads up, right? Babies need to grow up, and as they grow, they grow in their knowledge, And their bodies gain abilities that they don't have, coordination that they don't have. They can't even bring their hands together when they're infants, right? And they grow in their capacity. A big body can do more than a little body. And that's kind of the operating image that Paul's giving us. What is growing up into our head look like in the church? How do we pursue complete and mature unity with Christ in our knowledge and ability, and capacity the way this passage envisions. Here's what I see in this part of Paul's great letter to the church in Ephesus. Our unity in Christ is manifested and developed and pursued in three active ways. We're called to share, get these words, in Christ's humility, in Christ's generosity, and in Christ's victory. And it's all there in the passage. Those are the ways that we grow up into Christ, that we actually resemble Christ, and that we become a suitable partner for Christ, or a body that actually fits the head. We imitate His humility. We emulate His generosity. And we replicate His victory in our own lives, and in our life together. So let's go through this passage and look at those things. Let's start with humility. Paul sort of subtly uses his, himself as an example. I don't know if you noticed how this passage this morning started. It could have started, I, Paul, an authoritative bearer of Christ's revelation by virtue of being an apostle, say to you, but he didn't say that. He said, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord for your sakes. But the supreme example of humility is Christ himself. Paul quotes a verse from Psalm 68. The way Paul uses Psalm 68 in this passage is really interesting. Psalm 68 is a psalm of God's victory over the nations, God's ascension to his throne in the midst of a rebellious world. Paul rereads this through the eyes of what happened in Christ. He rereads it as a psalm of The divine glory that the Father conferred on Jesus when he conquered death and set us free from our sins and ascended to heaven. Paul also offers his own theological riff on the one verse that he quotes from Psalm 68, a short reflection on the descent 
and the ascent of Jesus, that with all due respect to our translation, is not at all parenthetical, even though they put it in parentheses. In fact, this is actually central to Paul's thinking and to what Paul is trying to tell us. Jesus, the one who was from before the foundation of the world, from all eternity, equal with God, humbled himself. He's the one who descended, who stooped down to lift us, who emptied himself so that we could be filled, what was the phrase last week? To all the fullness of God. He was God, but he took on human flesh, humbled himself, considered others better than himself, came not to be served, but to serve. That's the essence of humility. Humility is not a feeling or an attitude or just something that happens on the inside of a person. Humility is a habit of being that expresses itself in doing on the outside in the way you act towards others. Humility is a functional thing or it's nothing. Humility is actively letting go of your interests, of your rights, so that someone else can benefit. If you think about it, this is the kind of humility, genuine humility, that heals and that builds, that builds unity. It's the opposite of the me-first attitude that's so common in every human heart that damages relationships, that breaks down community, that makes people hoard instead of share. I mean, think about it. What's, what's the most obviously wrong thing about our own country and our own culture these days? Isn't it the radical self-centeredness that we see every day from the highest levels to the lowest? Narcissism and selfishness are what dominate our politics, our entertainment, our economy, and in many ways, even our religion and spirituality. Go to the spirituality section of a bookstore sometime and see how many of those things are essentially focused on the self instead of serving God and serving the world. What if, what if Donald Trump tried to elevate Justin Trudeau just once instead of trying to tear him down like a Great Dane going after a chihuahua? What if, what if liberals and conservatives actually tried to listen to one another and understand one another and seek the common good instead of just getting the advantage in every interaction? And I'm just talking about the common good. But what Scripture is talking about is seeking the good of others above your own good. Jesus came down from the throne that is far above all thrones and came not to be served, but to serve. And he asks us to do the same. It's that simple. That's how we express and pursue our unity with him, by being humble as he was humble. There's a more active counterpart to humility, generosity. I want to point out a bit of a twist in the way Paul uses Psalm 68. Paul turns something in Psalm 68 upside down. The original version says that when he ascended on high, 
He received gifts from people. That's what you would expect. This psalm is painting a picture of something that would probably have been familiar to most people in that ancient culture. A victory parade. War is not a new thing in the world. There there, there were battles all the time. When someone wins, the triumphant king takes the the captured soldiers and the captured people from the conquered territory and leads them in chains, making a public spectacle of them. And his own people would then shower that triumphant leader with gifts of gratitude for this victory over their enemies in which they shared. That's what you would expect a triumphal procession to look like. That's what Psalm 68 looks like in the original. But that's not what happens in Ephesians 4. The captives are there. Captivity itself is taken captive. But the one who should receive gifts, gives them. When he ascended on high, he he took captivity captive and he gave gifts to human beings. Generosity is obviously related to humility, seeking the other's good above your own, but it takes it a step further. Generosity is not just a passive surrendering, but it's an active giving. It's, It's an affirmative action sort of thing. And Paul also seems to be calling us to a generosity that is like the generosity of Jesus. He's calling us to serve one another, which is what the word translated as ministry in verse 12 actually means in Greek. The word diakonia, the word deacon comes from. It means serve. Paul's calling us to build one another up. Paul's calling us to teach one another. Paul's calling us to help one another stand firm against whatever out there wants to separate us from Jesus and from one another. Paul is calling us to care for one another in the body of Christ. By the way, Mary Beth Lundgren is leading an adult education segment over the next several weeks that will really help us and equip us to do these things. It seems to me that, that, that this caring for one another class and the book is springing right out of this passage where Paul is calling us to offer ourselves to God by generously doing things for one another within the body of Christ. So just a little commercial for 9 a.m. Sunday school for the next five weeks, is it? So we express and pursue unity with Christ by imitating His humility by emulating his generosity, but we also do it by replicating his victory in our own lives. Psalm 68, if it's anything, is a celebration of victory. And this part of Ephesians, more or less, is working out what it means for us to share in Christ's victory. Have you ever thought about this? What did Jesus conquer? What is this victory actually, what does it consist of? Well, certainly he conquered death by his resurrection. And certainly he conquered the shame and the guilt of sin by his suffering and death on the cross. But it's a much bigger victory. Throughout his whole life, he overcame temptation. He overcame doubt. He overcame Satan's attempt 
to thwart the mission that he came to accomplish for our sakes and all the schemes that Satan threw at him. Have you ever thought about how alert Jesus had to be all the time? The story of his temptation in the wilderness, I don't know if you're familiar with it, gives us some great insight into how Satan worked in Jesus' life and how Satan also works in our life. Satan attacked him at his weak points, the the ones he shared with every human being, his bodily appetites, his anxieties, and his ambitions. That's one of Satan's real genius tricks, to pervert our ambitions to be good into something that serves us instead of God, or that even serves Satan instead of God twisting the words of God, just like he did in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that? Is that what the Bible really means? Be on your guard against those things. Jesus had to cope with those kinds of deceitful schemes his whole life. How often did the Pharisees try to trap him, trick him, and trip him up? But he always found refuge in the truth. He held fast, and he won the victory. And he's the pattern for us. It says in the book of Hebrews, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because he's been tempted in all ways just as we are. Therefore, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We're called to share in his victory and he's ready to send reinforcements. By his victory, we're already free from the guilt of sin. At least in a theologically true way. We still are working that out emotionally and psychologically in lots of ways in our lives. But we really have been set free from guilt. And we really have been set free from death. One day we'll share fully in his victory over death. That's the essential core belief of Christianity. Jesus will raise us from the dead. But meanwhile, our calling is to stand with him. In the truth, not just believing the truth, but living out the truth. I and mean, that's one of the terrible mistakes we make. We reduce truth to a thing that's up here instead of out there at the end of your fingers where you live your life. Truth always means right doing as well as right thinking. Truth is our place to stand if we want to share in Christ's victory. And that's why Paul tells us that we need to resist the winds of doctrine and the evil schemes because it separates us from the truth. The antidote that Paul prescribes is this, speaking the truth in love. We must grow up in every way into him who is the head. So how do you know what the truth is? Paul spells that out pretty clearly in this passage. Truth is whatever Jesus has handed down to us through the apostles. And that gets passed down through prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers whose work is to equip us all for the work of ministry and the work of building up the body of Christ. But the truth is what Christ receives from the Father and hands on to the apostles. And we call that God's Word. That's what builds us up in our knowledge and in our ability And in our capacity to serve Jesus and one another. That's what makes us become a body that fits the head. That's the only thing that can grow us 
and nurture us and disciple us and discipline us and train us to be a body that actually fits the head in its stature and in its strength. And we need to be connected to one another by and in and through the Word of God. And I think we need a clear conviction that God's Word is different from anything else written down in any book anywhere. God's Word isn't just truer than anything else. God's Word is alive. God's Word is the difference between a painting of a tree and the tree itself that bears fruit. God's Word is life-giving. God's Word is filled with God's own presence and power. I want to share a quote that I came across this week by a Catholic theologian whose last name is von Balthasar. I can't even remember his first name. Does anyone know? Hans. Hans Urs von Balthasar. Yeah. Well, this might sound even better in German, but it sounds pretty good in English. The vital thing is the living encounter with the God who speaks to us in his word, whose eyes pierce and purify us like a flame of fire, whose command summons us to new obedience. And this is the one I love. Who each day instructs us as if until now we had learned nothing. That might sound kind of discouraging, but it's actually not. Because God's ready to teach you what you so far have probably failed to learn. And whose power, he says, sends us out anew into the world upon our mission. And I want to just say one more thing about that quote. I know about it because Cam Anderson recommended the book to me. And Cam and I hang out sometimes and and talk about things like this. And we need to do that. We need to have relationships within the body of Christ that that strengthen our connection to one another, that, that, that make the muscles bulge and grow, that make the ligaments strong and supple, we, connect, we strengthen our connection to Christ by strengthening our connection to one another, and we strengthen our connection to one another by strengthening our connection to Christ. And Paul, and the Word is at the center of this. There's two, I'm going to end with this, two quotations from Paul. One of them comes from, from Colossians. Teaching and admonishing one another, he says. Singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, making music in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in thought, word, and deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's one of the great quotes of the New Testament. I didn't get it quite right. But the one that I will get right is the one that's in the passage we heard this morning. Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into the one who is the head. And we can't compromise either one of those things. Not the truth and not the love. It's only the truth spoken in love that will build us up into our head, Jesus Christ. Amen?